Excuse me, please, while I light up my cigar. All right, all right, there, there it is. Okay, okay, I, I like to see that uh, we're developing a little discipline here among the troops and that uh, things are snapping, too, when you want them to snap, too. I'm thinking uh, seriously, I don't know whether I should do this or not. I, I'm, I'm, I'm entertaining, actually, opinion, if you have an opinion on this. I'm uh, thinking seriously of doing what they do on the uh, big television shows, you know, the big comedy shows like the Danny Thomas show and so on. Uh, perhaps you're not aware that most of these shows, in fact, every last one of them, the family situation shows, have a department that do nothing but run in wild, tumultuous applause and insane, raucous belly laughter at every slight innuendo that something could possibly have been funny if it was read right and if it had been written literally, which, of course, it never is. Uh, and so uh, I'm thinking seriously of employing a large group of people to run in in the background behind everything I do the sound of a fantastic crowd, like, say, about 40,000 people uh, applauding a dictator outside of a piazza. You know, that kind of thing. And then you'd know how important I am. That's the trouble with you people out there. You think that just because I sit here and scratch and blow my nose that I'm not really saying anything. Well, we've got to have a large crowd applauding, and it's very important. And, I, and I'm entertaining uh, opinions. Uh, do, you think, do you think this might aid you? Uh, I know that a lot of people feel a little, uh, a little sense of guilt. I hate to use that word uh, aloud on the radio, but a lot of people feel a little sense of guilt for just listening to the radio. You know, today, uh, you don't ever admit that you listen to the radio. Uh, in fact, I, I, I run into people constantly who always tell me it's their kid who listens to the radio, and they get it through him secondhand that the other day that I said something about, and then they go on and tell me the whole show for the last four and a half years, you know, uh, <laughs> that, that everybody today tries to pretend that he does nothing but go to the theater. Uh, nobody in his right mind would say, well, no, I never go to the theater. What a, oh, come on, it's rotten stuff. And then you say, well, do you read? Nah, nah, who will spend waste time reading? No, 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 everyone pretends that he reads incessantly, just constantly reading. His eyeballs are just sweating from all the reading he does. He spends most of his time when he's not reading, sitting there watching serious plays, uh, with, with Geraldine Page up there getting all excited in the second act. He, he, uh, and he never once would ever admit that he listens to the radio. And I think this is because we do not generate the kind of crowd activity that the other things do. I mean, they just, you know, they've got that. Can you imagine how terrible you'd feel if you went to the theater some night or a movie some night and you pay your money at the box office? And it's quiet out in front of the theater. There's nothing happening. No cars pulling up. You walk up and you say, how much for an orchestra seat? And she says, 440. And you say, 440, that's not too bad, orchestra seat. And you reach into your wallet and you take out $5 and you plunk it down. And she hits the little button and out comes the change. And she gives you the little green ticket. And you walk in there and there's the man standing in there, you know, by the little thing there where they tear the ticket in half. And he says, tickets, please. And you give him your ticket, and he tears it in half. You walk through the lobby, and there's nobody in there. And the uh, the usherette comes up and says, let me see our stub, please. And you show the stub, and she says, yes, uh, A22, follow me. And you go down through the aisle in the darkness, and you finally are ushered to your seat, and you sit down. It's very quiet. And then you begin to accustom your eyes, you know, to the darkness. And you look around, and you see that you are the only one there. 
and it's only two and a half minutes before curtain. You are it. And finally you hear, chuk, 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 chuk. you know, when you're by yourself in the theater, you can hear every last sound. You can hear actors sneezing in dressing rooms down in the basement. Spear carriers you can hear back there putting on their shoes. And every, and you hear people swearing and muttering and you hear stagehands talking. And then up goes the curtain and out comes Sir Laurence Olivier. And you are the only man in the audience. And he looks out over this vast, empty cavern. You're sitting there looking up, you know, in the darkness. Just a slight touch of amber light catching your eyeball there, you know, just a little backwash from the stage. And he looks out, and he immediately starts this fantastic play. It's Richard the, Richard the Lionheart. And he walked across the stage, his armor clanking. I want a horse! And it echoes back and forth, back and forth. You're sitting there kind of feeling embarrassed. You shouldn't be seeing you know, Here's this guy up there hollering and wants a horse at the top of his lungs. And you're the only guy. And you're only seven rows back of the orchestra. And <laughs> Well, now, you see what I'm saying to you? You understand that? We've got to produce the feeling that you are one of a vast throng before you feel comfortable sitting there applauding. Now, let's face it, most radios are listened to in the most unlikely places. I know that there are some people listening to a radio, probably listening to this right now, who would be embarrassed to admit where they're listening to the radio. Well, be careful. We've got devices here where we can tell. You'd be surprised. Technici technicians have gone far beyond what they'll admit. Now, we've we got secrets, Dad, we just don't tell about. Do you know that we're observing you with the voice coil in your loudspeaker right now? We can switch to a screen and see what you're doing? <laughs> I thought that would cause a little excitement there. <laughs> well, don't worry. We're, we're just here to sell you goods, friends. And we're not here to peek under the door even though we can peek under the door. So let's get right to the business at hand, shall we? Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's part of it, you know. Have, have, you, wondered, have you really wondered why uh, television shows often do and will have uh, canned laughter, which is obviously canned. There's nobody fooled by this, you know. Uh, they'll have canned laughter. Have you ever wondered what kind of reality this is? Here you see a scene... It's, it's interesting. You'll see a scene, like, say, uh, oh, the Robert Cummings show or Danny Thomas or somebody, and it's being played out in this guy's private living room or it's in the kitchen or something. He's with, Or maybe it's even in the bedroom. I've seen scenes where it's dark. You know, Danny Thomas is in bed there, and uh, he's lying there in the, in the dark, and his wife is in the next bed, and the phone rings, you know, and, and uh, he gets on the phone, and you hear this wild laughter. Where are these people supposed to be? <laughs> and it's darkness, you know. He doesn't hear it, apparently. He doesn't say, what in the, who the devil is laughing in the closet? What's that crowd doing in the closet there? Nothing. Just peculiar sense of, of uh, a strange, distorted reality. Now, how would you like to go to a movie? Now, to put it on another... And this seems perfectly normal, perfectly natural for people to watch this and think that there is somewhere, someplace, a crowd watching Danny Thomas do this scene. Now, what if you went to the movie... You see, you're watching, uh, let's say, uh, Doris Day. I mean, we just pick any, mo the most unlikely. Here's, here's Doris Day, see, and Rock. And uh, Doris and Rock are riding in their convertible Thunderbird. 
And uh, well, you see the scene already. And they're riding through the California countryside. And it, you know, it looks like it's all been sprayed with green paint and stuff. Natalie Kalmus has been at work. Uh, that <laughs> I'll, bet, I'll, bet, I'll bet Natalie Kalmus has had more screen credits than anybody in the history of the movie industry. How many times have you seen Natalie Kalmus, Technicolor consultant? <laughs> There is a legendary name, I'll tell you. And so, so Natalie Kalmus has sprayed the entire countryside green. The sky is bright cerulean blue. Uh, the, the, the sunshine is gold, and it's fantastic. And Rock and Doris are riding through this, through this countryside in their Thunderbird, when without any warning, Doris says a funny thing to Rock, or you know what passes for a funny thing in the movies, and you hear this heavenly host somewhere coming out of the desert, wildly screaming insane laughter. You're sitting there in this crummy, rotten, little two-bit neighborhood theater. How would you feel about that? Well, I, I don't know how you'd feel about it. I really don't. And, in fact, uh, I wonder whether or not it might be effective. I, I suspect it could very well be. The other night I'm looking on late, 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 late television. And I'm, yeah, oh, we're real late, you know, when the really great stuff comes on, like movies uh, about Fibber McGee and Molly. Did you know that they made movies? There's Fibber McGee and Molly, you know, in, in a movie. And you, you see things like movies starring, uh, what was his name, the guy that had Beetle and Bottle? Somebody had, uh, oh, what was his name? Phil Baker, that's it. And he plays the accordion. And uh, you hear you hear bottle or beetle going wow wow in the background, and, and Edgar Bergen movies and all that kind of stuff. They come on at two or three o'clock in the morning, and these people are doing all this stuff. And the one and you begin to have a sense of unreality about it. You're watching this thing, and they're saying things, funny things, you know. And, and Charlie McCarthy, Charlie McCarthy's talking, and you wonder what it is, what what is lacking, and you realize what it is. They don't have canned laughter. Uh, Laurel and Hardy never once put canned laughter behind them, ever, in any of their movies. They relied on their action to trigger laughter in the audience. And if it didn't, they just wouldn't be back next week, that's all. And let me tell you, you, could, you cannot watch a Laurel, I don't care how rotten you are, I don't care how prune-like your, your soul is, you cannot watch a Laurel and Hardy movie for five minutes without busting up. I have never had this happen to me watching Charlie Chaplin. Now, isn't that, uh, it be that treason, let that be desecrating a, a gigantic memory. It's a fact. I have never once, out loud, laughed at Charlie Chaplin. In fact, I rarely have laughed at Charlie Chaplin inside. You, you watch Charlie Chaplin uh, in, a, in a very strange way. I just don't get anything out of Chaplin much. But Laurel and Hardy, I'll tell you, there is something uh, instantly where they contact the audience, and without any question of all, you're just sitting there, you know, and you can't, you can't help it. I remember one, one scene, I don't know whether you, you remember this scene from Laurel and Hardy, uh, they're up in the attic of a house, and they're in, they're in hiding. They're hiding from their wives. They're, they're, they always had these two shrewish, insane wives. That uh, <laughs> you remember the two, the two wives. They're always hiding from. They're up in the attic of the house, and they are supposed to be somewhere ten thousand miles away. And really, they're in hiding in Hardy's house, up in the attic. And they're lying there in a in a great big iron bed, fantastic iron bed with an enormous brass. Headboard, big headboard with with all kinds of scrolls and it had angels all. This really this really predated Tennessee Williams. It went past before that. And these two guys are lying in this bed, and there's a fantastic storm outside, and it's going. <laughs> they're lying there, and 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 of course you know exactly what's going to happen. 
Laurel begins to cry. <laughs> the storm. And Hardy is lying there looking very confident with his derby hat on. And you hear the wind blowing. You hear the shutters banging. And Laurel and Hardy are lying in bed there. And Laurel's... And Hardy says, what are you afraid of? Another thunderclap. You know doggone well what he's afraid of, you know. Everybody in the audience is scared out of their skull already. We're all afraid of giant storms, you know. Boom! You t there's a shot of the, of the heavens opening up, you know. You see the lightning going from one cloud to the other, and a great sheet of rain comes down. And Hardy says, there is nothing to be afraid of. We are perfectly safe here. Boom! It goes <laughs> You hear, you hear poor old Lord. He just makes that little squeaking sound. And his, then they're just lying, and you can see the bed is shaking a little bit because of, because of Laurel crying. You get little sobs. And Hardy is lying there just as calm as a gigantic, big, fat old marshmallow with his derby hat on the top. And you can just see him flicking his tie up. You know how he flick his tie up? flick his tie at the audience. To me, he was far more an artist, and I hate to say this, than Laurel. Oh, they were both magnificent. But Laurel usually gets credit for being the, the, uh, the, the really funny one. Not, no, no, no. To me, Hardy was a, was a magnificent... You know what Hardy was? If Hardy was alive and performing today, Hardy would be the image upon which all the second-rate Zero Mostels are based. He was a... He, this guy moved like a gazelle and Incredible movements this guy had. Flick his little tie. Who are you talking to? He'd go with a tie like that. <laughs> He'd cry. Well, here they are in bed. You see, he's got the scene. Boom! He says, what? There's nothing to be afraid of. Boom! And then he said, we are as safe as two peas in a pot. Boom! He flicks it up. Boom! And just at that instant, a bolt of lightning comes right in the attic door. <laughs> it flies right in, goes all the way across the attic. How they ever did this, I don't know. They had a bolt of lightning. It hangs there in midair, runs over the top of the brass bedstead, and goes right out the other door and heads towards Cleveland. Boom! There's a dead silence. Then you more squeaking. And Hardy simply says, just as I said, as safe as two peas in a pot, it missed. <laughs> and not once did they run audience laughter behind this thing. But let me tell you, the audience was on the floor, knocking its head on the, on the, on the base of the seats amid all the gum wrappers and the baby Ruth wrappers and the whole scene. And, and you, knew, you knew instantly, of course, these men relied on their own work. That was the big difference. You remember, you remember the great scene that Laurel and Hardy uh, performed in one of the great westerns. Uh, I'll tell you what. Get, get me the next theme up. But while you're while you're preparing this western theme, it's the theme from High Noon. Get High Noon up there. And while we're doing that, let's pause briefly for a commercial, friends. Well, one of one of my absolute favorite uh, scenes. That, that I, I remember from a Laurel and Hardy picture. And I can't recall what picture it was from, except that they were out west. Do you, do you remember such a picture when Laurel and Hardy were out west? And, and they, they used to have the most 
the most insanely uh, unlikely plot lines, and yet very, very likely <laughs> in a nutty way. Uh, Laurel and Hardy, uh, of all things, were a pair of traveling dentists who were going out west to set up a dental office. I mean, this, I mean, this is in the days of the cowboy and Indians, you know, and the whole scene. And, and the way this picture opened, you know, I, I don't know whether you know how these two guys worked, but they were improvisers. Uh, Laurel and Hardy created their own movies. Uh, they did not. They did not have a script line the way, uh, say, uh, Jack Lemmon will have, or way somebody like uh, Jerry Lewis will have. They literally uh, improvised their movies, and they would sit down and they would say, "Well, let's be out west." And uh, the man who created the incidents, who who really, you might say, built the scenes, was Stan Laurel. Uh, he was far more of a writer, far more of a creator than Hardy was. But Oliver Hardy was a magnificent performer. Uh, have you ever seen movies of the two when they were separate? I'll never forget one of the great, great little movies. It's a two-reeler. One of the great classic movies uh, is a two-reeler that shows Stan Laurel long before he met Oliver Hardy. And he was making, he was a caveman. It was a nutty little movie. He's a little tiny. He was the first non-successful, totally, completely anti-hero caveman. This was way before the days of the anti-hero. He's a little skinny caveman, and he was hiding in a cave. And and where these guys got these people, I don't know. In the in the silent pictures, but do you remember the fantastic gorillas? That that have you ever seen the in in the museums and stuff where they show the old movies, where they get these fantastically gigantic men with the dark circles under their eyes? You remember the guys that, that Charlie Chaplin and, and Laurel and Hardy, I mean, enormous guys playing tremendous cops, or they're playing thugs and so on. Well, here he was surrounded by a crowd of cavemen that looked uh, just uh, the, the scariest crowd of cavemen you ever saw in your life. Millions of them, great, huge, gnarled faces, and in the middle of it all is little Stan Laurel. He's a tiny caveman, and he's hiding in his cave, and you see these monsters going past, gigantic cavemen. Walking on all fours. They really did it realistically because they really looked like cavemen. Walking on all fours. They're grunting and he looks out. And he is peeking into the next cave. Because in the next cave is a chick caveman. Or let's put it this way. A chick cave girl. And she's a little, you know, real sharp. You know the kind they had in in the silent movies, the long golden curls? (laughs) Here she is in a a strange, nutty way. Her curls are all hanging down over her eyes this time, but they're long golden curls, see? And she's got a leopard skin, and she's hiding down there, and she keeps peeking out, and she sees Laurel down there. And Laurel is peeking at her, but by the mouth of the cave is, is her father, who is 17 feet tall, who's 19 feet across and is pure dinosaur. And he goes, he looks down there and he rushes over at the cave and you see poor little Laurel run back into the darkness of the cave. He squeaks, hides down there. And then he goes back to his cave and comes out. Well, the final confrontation came when Laurel is is being pursued by the father. And as he falls down, after having been belt by the father caveman, he's falling down and he grabs a rock just a rock, and he staggers around, picks up a, 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 a piece of board that's there, a big big log, and in falling, he swings it, hits the father caveman on the head, and knocks him cold. It was the first weapon. It had never been done before, you see. It was magic. And there was the final scene in the movie. He was elevated to a godlike status.
and he had the club in his hand. He was the first caveman to discover the use of a weapon. How about that for a philosophical movie? And that was the first Laurel movie. Stan Laurel had just made that when he came over from England and got about $6 for making that movie, and, and he had written this. Speaking of $6, we've got to get the dough girl rolling here, friends, so let's move into the world of the sales department. Well, I've always been fascinated by, by the idea of theatricality and what, what theatricality really is to us. Uh, we certainly don't have much of it in our own lives, uh, the, the, nobody plays theme music when we walk into a room, although I suspect that is in the works. I suspect, <laughs> I suspect with the way showbiz is taking over the world, that eventually there will be, really, I, I think there will be uh, devices set up so that when you come into your house, you'll cut through an electric eye beam and this great love theme will come on. Bomb, 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 bomb. Clarence is home. Bomb, 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 bomb. Either that or you can select something that's this really dramatic and it really belts it out. Bomb, bomb, bomb. Clarence walks in. Bomb, 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 bomb. And, and everyone knows that Clarence, a symphony among men, has just stepped upon the carpet and is now making his presence known. Bum, 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 bum. And he walks across. What's for supper? Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's very important, uh, showbiz, and the theatricality to it. And, and, oh, speaking of theatrical, one of the great theatrical openings that I've ever seen to a movie, and uh, this was Laurel and Hardy again. Uh, it opened up. You remember how they used to open? You remember the theme? <laughs> They had a great theme. They, they were one of the very few movie performers that I ever heard of. In fact, I don't know of any others that had a theme before every one of their their, their movies, an actual theme song, just like uh, a radio show would have or, uh, well, a theme, you know. They... You remember that theme, a great theme? And, as soon, and it would come on in the darkness. You're sitting in the theater, and before the screen would light up even, you'd hear... And, and everyone would start laughing as Laurel and Hardy is coming on the scene. Well, they had this one picture where you hear this, the sound of this theme song, and it fades down behind them, and you could just hear it very faintly in the background. And it is a shot of a gigantic desert. It is a desert that stretches on and on and on and on. Just as far as the eye could see where they shot this scene, it must have been a Death Valley. You could see nothing except this fantastic expanse of pure wasteland. There wasn't a tree. There wasn't anything. Just sand as far as you could see. And right in the middle of the screen is a tiny dot. The scene must have been shot from an airplane or something, a little tiny dot. And you got closer and closer and closer. And as you got closer and closer, they brought very sneakily into the background the sound of Western music. They bring it up. And you can sense this great, great West where the savages had roamed, where the wind blew free, and where the coyotes howled in the long, cold nights under a clear crystal moon where danger 
lurk behind every shred of cactus, where the sand was cold and hot, and where water was far, far away. It was the West, the primal West, where man was free, where men were men, and where guts were guts. Then, as our camera got closer and closer and closer to that tiny dot, that tiny dot amidst the great vast sea of desert sand, we saw two seated figures wearing derby hats, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. Lost adrift. In the great ancient wilderness of America's West, our camera moved in closer and closer. The wind howled. And finally, Oliver Hardy spoke, looking at Laura. A fine mess you've got us into now. <laughs> A fine mess you've got us into now. <laughs> What an opening! And Laurel's just going. <laughs> How the devil did they get into this? <laughs> oh man! Oh, you talk about Ingmar Bergman. Speaking of messes, it's time now for the station break. <laughs> you like those movie scenes? <laughs> <laughs> You've got to admit that I'm basically theatrical. You cannot deny it. Now, now you give me the next cut. Now, I'll, I'll build another scene here. You give me the next cut, and I'll, I'll build you another scene. We'll leave the world of Laurel and I. Oh, yeah, one more, one more uh, little scene out of that movie should be described. When, uh, when Laurel and Hardy are both sitting on this rock, and uh, <laughs> you don't know, why. they're just sitting there, and the sun is beating down. And both of them are talking, and 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 how they're going to get out of here. This is a, their, their mule has run away, and they don't know how they're going to get out. He says, "You certainly have gotten us into a fine kettle of fish this time." And he flicks his tie up. Wind blows past his hat, and look. And he says, "He says, what are we going to do now?" Fine kettle of fish. And they're both sitting there looking directly out at you, and then you see behind them, going past totally unnoticed, a stagecoach goes past, and they've missed it. <laughs> and it just disappears. You never see it again. <laughs> you know they, they did they did these great things. I mean, the, the, uh, seriously, I'm I'm afraid friends make Charlie Chaplin look like a boy. And an egotistical one at that, but uh, uh, we'll leave the. Oh, one more scene. I have to go. One, one more scene. I have to describe in this great classic movie, which uh, you know people are constantly surprised that fat men can move the way fat men can move. Well, I, I suppose it's because a really fat man has to learn agility from an early age, or else he's going to knock all the end tables down. 
Uh, it's a truth. A, a fat man has has to has to literally dance on his toes to get into a theater seat. Can you imagine a big fat guy that weighs 400 pounds trying to get into uh, a movie seat? You know, walking. He has to walk like fantastic. You know, he's like juggling 17 watermelons, and he, he develops this this tremendous sense of of, uh, of orientation. Oh yeah, they 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 move. And one of the greatest movement men I've ever seen was Oliver Hardy. And there was a great scene when the two of them had arrived. They, they finally arrived in this dusty, rotten, stinking western town. Oh, boy, it was, a, it was really a tough western town. And what a scene. Their, their stagecoach came into town, and they're, they're, they're sitting in the coach, you see. They finally get picked up by a coach, and there's only one passenger in the coach. It's lovely, beauteous Belinda Lee. Uh, there's always, the, you know, that lovely western school marm who's always going out, and she's got golden curls, and they sit down in the coach, and they're both sitting knee to knee, you know. And they did a, a takeoff on the problem that all of us face when we get into an elevator. Do you talk to people in an elevator or don't you? What do you do? Well, if you can imagine guys being picked up in the middle of a desert and uh, by a stagecoach, and there's only one person on the coach, it's this beautiful girl. Here they sit. For, they're just sitting there. And she's looking sort of coldly out the window. And they're knee to knee. And finally, uh, Oliver says to her, Good afternoon. Flexes. <laughs> Silence. And he smiles a little bit. And Stanley looks a little sad. You can see a little tear coming to his eye. They've been snubbed again. And with that, Oliver turns to his right, and he's got a big basket. He starts opening the basket. He opens the top, takes it off, and he takes off a big towel that's on top of that. And then he opens up, it uh, looks like a, a big uh, tablecloth. He opens that, and he's opening the, what, what has he got in there? And he reaches down very delicately, and his hands flutter through the air. And he reaches down, and he takes out, without a question of a doubt, the biggest, most fantastic turkey leg I have ever seen in my life. It must have been an ostrich leg. It couldn't have been a turkey leg. Gigantic leg. He pulls it out and he holds it in front of him. He takes a little bite. The girl is looking at him. He says, would you like a light repast? <laughs> She's looking at the turkey leg. <laughs> and she sort of nods and he says, I'd be delighted to share it with you. And he hands her the turkey leg, and here is this lovely girl sitting there nibbling on a giant turkey leg that must have weighed five and a half pounds. And with that, Laura says, enjoy yourself. And he reaches down, he reaches down into the thing, all the way down, until finally he pulls out a lobster. <laughs> he has a lobster, and he takes the lobster claw, and he goes, He's got a lobster. You wonder, where the devil did he get a lobster in the middle of that? Never explains. <laughs> and then he says, to, he says to Laurel, would you care for a claw? And Laurel goes, <laughs> you know, he goes, yes, yes, Oliver. And he hands him this claw, and all three of them sit going through the desert off into the distance. They just fade off. And then you see them arriving in this western town. Oh, boy, if you think you've seen Western Towns with Gary Cooper, 
coming into this dusty little frontier village, you got to see what Laurel and Hardy came into. The wind was howling. It, it reminded me of one of these Japanese movies like Kurosawa. You know, the wind is howling through the streets, and you see, you see just little tumbleweeds going, and there's not even a wagon rut. You see these little gray, weather-beaten houses, and the stagecoach came in. And as the stagecoach came in, you saw these people coming out of the house, one after the other. You never saw in your life such a collection of incredible thugs. They're just looking at the stagecoach. <laughs> and the poor guys, the stagecoach arrives in front of the silver dollar. And with that, Oliver leaps out, you know, with his gentle way. He says, Ed, my dear, he sweeps his hat off, opens the door, the girl steps out, and behind him you see looming the shape of this 19-foot-high man with a great big black hat, the heavy blue jowls, and an enormous star. And he says nothing, just looks down at Oliver Hardy. Oliver is being very gallant, you know, sweeping around. And all of a sudden he says, Partner, get your paws off my gal. Oliver turns around and says, Excuse me? And he looks all the way up at these blue jowls. And the man reaches down to his hip and pulls out the biggest horse pistol you ever saw in your life. And there is a moment of silence where both Laurel and Hardy are standing beside the stagecoach, and then it is broken by the sound of Laurel going, <laughs> They have come to town. He takes the stage, they said, great big pistol, and he points it down at his foot very casually and goes, boom! Now dance. And in the background, you hear, and the two of them began the most beautiful ballet you ever saw in your life a can can. Back and forth they go in the dusty street, surrounded by a thousand thugs with angry, cold eyes. Just watch it. And that sound behind them. And they flick up their coattails doing the... They just dance around about four times, punctuated by... Boom! They dance right back into the stagecoach, and the stagecoach takes off into the distance, and that's the end of the picture. <laughs> oh, man. Speaking of the end, here are a couple of commercials. Of course, theatricality. Uh, <laughs> now, now you, get, you got it all set in there, Mike? Yeah, that's right. I want, I want, the, I want the, the, that, that sneaky one there. Theatricality uh, is, 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 one of the, is one of the things which I think we have a, uh, among, uh, oh, there's uh, self-defense. Uh, there are things like eating. Uh, walking around, procreation, things of this nature that man has a basic desire and a need for. I think also theatricality. It goes all the way back as far as we know. Uh, you know that, that the original uh, rituals, the original religious rites, the original uh, witchcraft rites, everything, as far as we know, back to the very earliest man, there was something theatrical going on. Uh, there must have been something among the cavemen. I'm sure there was. There had to be. And, and can you imagine anything more theatrical than 10 million guys building pyramids? Uh, have you ever been to Egypt? 
You can't, you cannot comprehend the kind of theatricality these guys must have lived in just as a normal way of life. And I'm sure that people uh, a thousand years from now, or maybe more, when they walk around the ruins of our cities, uh, the, what will be left of our cities, when they walk around the ruins of Chicago, or they walk around the ruins of New York City, or they, they go through areas where we lived, they will be convinced that we lived lives of fantastic theatricality, just by the size of the buildings. Because, you know, they, they claim that in the future, man will spend most of his time living underground. Uh, a large numbers of, of uh, philosophers feel that the underground movement is going to begin about the year 2000, and the idea of the high-flung skyscraper is practically over. You know, you can see you can see evidences in various cities of uh, of, a, of a of a kind of romantic theatricality which has disappeared. Have you ever looked at a picture of the Empire State Building? They could not build a building of that type now. That kind of theatricality. That romantic theatricality, it's very closely akin, you know, to uh, some of the more uh, uh, explicit Gothic cathedrals of Europe. There's a certain kind of uh, romanticism. Uh, have you noticed, uh, have you ever seen something like the Wrigley Building in Chicago? There's another very romantic building. The Tribune Tower is another romantic building. Uh, there's a place in, in, in Cincinnati called the Carew Tower. Very romantic. We don't build romantic buildings any longer, but we build a certain kind of cold, machine-like, theatrical building. Uh, it's not necessarily romantic, but it is definitely theatrical. And so the theatricality is always with us. And, and one of the most theatrical times that I've ever spent... Of course, Europe is a theatrical place from the word go to an American. And uh, I saw a, a picture piece in the paper recently, and, and the theatricality of Europe is always connected with skullduggery. Uh, a certain kind of Orson Wellian, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Uh, a kind of man-of-the-world cosmopolite uh, striding through uh, the, the, the crashing cultures and the sneaking Prussian counts and all the rest of it. And there was a piece on the front page of the newspaper recently, you might have seen it, that told about uh, a guy in Rome being abducted. Listen to this. Customs policemen heard cries tonight from a trunk in the Rome airport and found a man inside bound to a tiny chair. Investigators accused two men from the embassy of the United Arab Republic of having tried to smuggle the chain captive to Cairo in an Egyptian airliner. The white diplomatic trunk bearing labels of the Egyptian embassy and address to the foreign ministry in Cairo had been specially fitted out. This is right out of James Bond, isn't it? It was lined with leather, and besides the chair had built-in slippers for the feet, a helmet for the head, and metal clamps for ankles and neck. A spokesman at the embassy said, We know nothing. We know nothing about this. <laughs> oh, boy, I mean, you just can't picture that happening in Cleveland. It just doesn't happen there, that's all, you know. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> but the most theatrical America ever gets is in his commercials. <laughs> well, I I, uh, I had one instance like that, uh, you know, when, when your life is suddenly invested. With, it's, it's, got, it's got a theatrical quality, and you just don't know... You just don't know which way to turn. Not too long after the war, I was in Munich. Now, Munich is one of the most theatrical of cities. It 
genuinely is. It's just a few miles from the Bavarian Alps. It lies there in the heart of, of one of the most ancient parts of Europe, where Germanic knights strode, you know, and Ludwig II's castle is right there. Oh, wow, and the city has a, has a strange, brooding, wild, swinging, medieval quality to it. And here I am, you know, I, I arrive, and of course, being an American, immediately I'm, I'm, t I'm taken into this world, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I, I'm drawn to it, and I'm repelled by it, and it mystifies me, and so immediately I begin to be, be that kind of person, you know, I sit in hotel lobbies and sip bitter coffee, and look strangely sad, <laughs> you know, vaguely decadent, as if I have seen it all, I have seen it all, and nothing surprises me any longer. And I'm sitting in the lobby of the Bayerischer Hof, one of the wildest, most interesting swinging hotels in all of Europe, a peculiar place. And I'll tell you how peculiar it is. If you can imagine being in a hotel where one half of the hotel is blocked off because it's been bombed. It's just gone, you know, and it's just great big, big pile of bricks and rocks and rubble and so on out there. And the other half is magnificent and opulent. It's standing there. And I am sitting in the lobby of the Bayerischer Hof. Now, they know how to do hotel worlds in, in Europe. Let me tell you, the if you think you've been in hotels, I'm sorry, unless you have really been in a genuinely European continental hotel, you don't know what a hotel can be like. And I, I, I respectfully submit to you that one of the sinister, most uh, European of hotels is the Bayerischer Hof. And you sit down in that lobby that has, has columns all around, low, dark, strange upholstered chairs that have a kind of medieval quality to them, and men in white coats wheel little carts back and forth and serve esoteric brandies to you and coffees and one thing and another. And all around in this place are people sitting. Now that's what makes the place mysterious. Tall, thin ladies in countess costumes. You can't forget the real, you know. They're sitting there, short, squat men with patches over their eyes. Obviously ex-Nazi major generals, at least. Sitting there, in comes Max Schmeling, the ex-heavyweight champion of the world, notorious paratrooper, notorious Nazi. He's sitting there. These people are surrounding you and eddying and moving in and out. And there I am, Hammond, Indiana. Old Shep sitting in the middle of it all there. And I'm wearing a wide-brimmed Spanish hat. <laughs> Sipping cappuccino. And all the while, playing it cool. When a man came up to me, leaned over my shoulder, a man I had never seen before, and said, Excuse me, please. And I said, What? What? You are an American, no? I said, Yes. Well, I have an interesting proposition to make to you. I turned, sweat beginning to start out from my eyeballs. I said, what is it? He said, are you looking for a good dry cleaning establishment? Ah, oh, I sipped my cappuccino and listened to the sound of zithers playing somewhere through the music.